that Jesus says to his people, Come out of her, my people, and be ye separate, and not, do not touch the unclean thing. And every one of us here in this sanctuary right now has been called by God to be here. You can rest assured that that is the truth. You were called by God. You may have thought, you made up your own mind, said, I'm going to go visit that church, or whatever it was. But you are called of God to be here this morning, and each and every morning till Jesus comes. This is a book called Patriots and Prophets. Have any of you ever read it? Okay, there's about 30 people that have read it. They're all over 100. Are there any young people who have ever read this book? There is a good man. This book is written on the history of this world giving you the religious history of this world, starting with the creation of this world and moving its way through history until you reach this book, which is called Prophets and Kings. Now, have any of you read Prophets and Kings? Oh, great. And then after you read Prophets and Kings, you get all the history at that point. Then you read a book that Congress has said, the Library of Congress, has said that this is the greatest book ever written on the life of Jesus Christ. How many of you want one? Well, only two of you want one. That's a shame. Greatest book ever written on the life of Jesus Christ. It really introduced you to Jesus like nothing you've ever seen before. And then after that comes a book called Acts of the Apostles. And that takes you, you see, the first book takes you all the way to the middle about kings and somewhere along in there, Chronicles, and, and maybe Samuel. And the next book takes you from there all the way to the end of the Old Testament. And then Desire of Ages takes you through the Gospels. And then this book takes you through all the apostles, what's going on in their lives and everything. And takes you through Paul and all of his writings, and this brings you up to date. Now, then comes the crowning act of this whole series, and this book is called The Great Controversy. Now, when I preach from the pulpit from time to time, you hear me quoting from Desire of Ages and Patriots and Prophets and The Great Controversy. And some of you have never read these books. You don't know what's in them, you don't know why I'm quoting from them. But if you were to, to uh, read them, then you would know. And so I went out this morning, and I, I just uh, met a young couple sitting quietly in a pew minding their own business, which, by the way, is Jesus' business. And, and they were there sitting there, and I said, would it embarrass you if I gave you a gift today from the pulpit? And, and the man looked over at his wife, and he says, no, it wouldn't embarrass her. <laughs> but I told him, I said, you don't have to come up. I'm going to take them down to you. So I'm going to give this young couple a set. The Conflict of the Ages series. One of the greatest things to put in the home of everyone who is young and starting out in life and starting out with your family because this helps you to make your life and home Christ-centered. And it gives you the history of the great controversy from the beginning of the Bible to the ultimate end of the Bible and to the end of time. So I'm going to do this because I'm the pastor. And I get to do things like this. You're very welcome. And of course, I have a second box here. Is anybody visiting today? 
I saw your daughter's hand go up. I saw a man down here raise his hand when I first put this up. And I said, anyone read this and he didn't raise it? And anyone read this and he didn't raise it? And then somebody said, I'd like to have that book. Whoops, excuse me. Let me put these back here. See if somebody wants to read them, would you? Okay, we have five minutes left for the sermon. Now you're going to turn this mic on because that man's going to read. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, the sixth chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace. Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are the ones, that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked, and though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you. The word grace 
comes from a Greek word, and the, it means the divine influence upon the heart and reflection in the life. There's the question, can a dead man sin? We'll take a vote. How many of you say that a dead man can sin? Can a dead man sin? Isn't that an important question to answer? You see, if you were listening while he read that, you noticed in there it said that you were what? Dead to sin. Romans 6, 6 and 7. What does Romans 6, 6 and 7 say? We know that our old, unrenewed self was nailed to the cross with him in order that our body, which is the instrument of sin, might be made ineffective and inactive for evil and that we might no longer be slaves of sin. For when a man dies, he is freed, free, loosed and delivered from the power of sin. So we're going to take a look at this question, can a dead man sin? And here's our basis. This is the centrality of the gospel. If you want to take the whole gospel, bring it down into one statement, Paul makes it right here in Galatians 2.20. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Let's just stop right there. Jesus was crucified. How many of you agree? Okay. And Jesus, after he was crucified, he was buried. How many agree to that? Okay. And in between when he was crucified and he was buried, he was dead. Okay, so we're, we're pretty well fixed on that, okay? He was crucified, he died, and he was buried. I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page while we're going through this. Now, I am crucified with Christ. Now, if I'm crucified with Christ, did I die? If I'm crucified with Christ, I died. Now, can a dead man sin? Jesus came to this earth as a man. Whose life did he live? When he came to earth as a man, whose life did he live? He lived a life perfectly. Whose life was it? Jesus came to this earth as a man on a purpose, on a mission. And the book of Romans tells us what that mission is. And he came and, and he lived a perfect life. From the moment he was born until he was crucified, he never sinned once. Never even in a thought or anything, he never sinned. Whose life did he live? Perfectly. He lived our life. But he didn't live your life. Well, you just said he lived our life. Now you said, no, he didn't live your life. No, he lived our life. Now, you have me confused now. How many of you say he lived our life? Okay. So I got like four or five hands up here. Okay, he lived our life. But he did not live my life. You see the question I just asked you? Whose life did he live? He lived our life. Now he, you said it again. He lived our life, but he didn't live my life. Whose life did he live? You see, you're confused. Okay, let's, let's clear it all up in a moment. 
Nobody in this room raised their hand and said, Jesus lived my life for me. You say he lived our life, but you didn't say he lived my life. You didn't make it perfect and, and brought it right home into you personally. I'll give you another chance. You always get 100% on my exam. Whose life did Jesus live when he came to earth? He lived my life. He was my substitute. He lived my life perfectly for me. So in the record of heaven, when God would look at my name, if, let me qualify this, if I accept the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrifice and my substitute, if I accept him as my sacrifice and substitute for me, to stand in for me, then God looks at me and what does he see? He sees Jesus. You got that one right. He sees Jesus. You know, Paul says, we see through a glass darkly. Well, it, it, it's one of those special mirrors they have in the police department. No one here I know has ever been in the police department. So, one of those special mirrors they have in the police department, and they can look through there, and you think you're looking at a mirror, and they're looking through and looking at you. And so, God has that position in such a way that when we look up to Jesus, we look right through him to God. And when God looks down to Jesus, he sees a reflection of himself. But it's me. And he's standing right there as my substitute. So he died. He lived my life perfectly for me. He died my death, my second death, not my first death, my second death. He paid that penalty, and he died for me. Overwhelms you, doesn't it? But it's okay. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So, Jesus lived it. Let's see, can I go backwards with this? Let's see. No, no I'm only going forward. Where, where's my, my, my man that takes care of the... Uh, here he comes. He'll back it up for me. So Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. So did I die? Okay, I died. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Oh, up there. Oh, wonderful. I'm still going forward. Am I coming back? Yes, there we go. Okay. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. How is that possible? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Now, if Jesus is living in you, Whose life is he living? Your life or his life? Think about that now. If Jesus is living in you now, whose life is he living? When Jesus came to earth, whose life did he live? My life. Whose death did he die? My death. Now, if I am crucified with Christ and I am dead, and it's person you see is not I, but Christ lives in me, whose life is he now living? His life, absolutely. He's living his perfect life in me. And he will live it perfectly and take me all the way to the kingdom of heaven if I will surrender and let him do it. But if I do not surrender and do not let him live his life in me, then I am hopelessly lost. And I may go to church all my life. And I may keep God's holy Sabbath day. And I may do everything right to the appearances of all mankind. But I'll end up when he's dividing the sheep and the goats. And he'll put me on the wrong side. 
And I'll say, wait a minute, Lord. Didn't I preach? Didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I uh, heal the sick? Didn't I do all the wonderful things in your name? And he says to me, depart from me. I never knew you. You didn't let me live in you. You thought you could do it all by yourself once you were baptized. But you can't do it all by yourself. None of us can. So when Jesus came to earth, he lived my life for me. And every one of us here in this room can say, he lived my life for me. He died my death for me. His reward is my reward. So I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Thank you, Jesus. And the life I now live in the flesh, just so you won't think this is all spiritual nonsense. We're talking about the life you're really living in the flesh. What's your decisions you're making, Jesus wants to live in you, help you to make all the right decisions and all the right moves so that you can be perfect in Him. The life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And I don't want you to get confused. If you look at many of the new translations, they change this whole thing. But we have gone back in, and I have gone back in personally, and I have looked at this in the original language, and it says the faith of Jesus. And every one of us is given a measure of faith. And whose faith are we given a measure of? The faith of Jesus. Now, what kind of faith is the faith of Jesus? The faith of Jesus is the faith that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the Father was removing His presence from the Son, and the Holy Spirit was withdrawing from the Son, the Son cried out and said, Father, I cannot go through this. Please take the cup away. I cannot go through it. And then he stopped for a second and he saw each one of you. He saw every one of you. And he said, no, no. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Three times he went through that. And then they came and they took him and he went through all the suffering that he was going through. And then when he's hanging on the cross... Then God turns his face away from Jesus. And you and I don't understand what that was, but that was the most painful thing that the Father had ever done. Never in, this, in the history of this universe had anyone ever been separated from God without a mediator. But now Jesus, who is our mediator, bore all the sins of this entire universe, was put on him... And he bore all those sins. And there was no mediator between him and God. The full wrath of God was coming down on him. And he could not bear it. And he was just wilting away from all the pressure of it. And the father turns his presence away. And the son cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm your son. I am the one you sent. Why have you forsaken me? Never had anyone felt a pain like that. No one has ever been separated from God that way. And while Jesus was hanging there on the cross, and the Father turns away, we, we can say there's Jesus hanging on the cross, and the Father turns away and turns His back on the Son. Who did He turn to? He turned to me. He turned to you. And every one of you can say, the Father turned to me. And he pointed to his Son and he says, this is my Son. My Son. Satan has said, I'm so selfish, nothing is for the benefit of anybody else. But I am giving my Son for you. And with tremendous pain, he smiled at all of us but feeling the pain of the cross. The Bible says that the Father was in Jesus, reconciling the whole world onto Himself. The tremendous pain that went on for the Father to turn to you and I, sinners, hammering nails into His Son's hands. 
and feet, thrusting the cross into the ground. Sinners. What pain for the Father. And yet in love, he turns to you and I and says, I'm doing this for you. What are you doing for him? Just as Adam's choice infected the human race with a terminal condition, so too Christ's perfect life has brought remedy to heal all who accept it. When Jesus came to the, went to the cross, whose death did he die? It says in Isaiah 53, he bore our stripes. He bore all of our punishment. And with his bearing them, we are healed and brought into reconciliation with the Father. Who cares? I care, Lord. That's who cares. I care. Do you care? Yeah. Romans 5.1. What does the Bible say? I know this isn't on, but I have that kind of, you know, make sure you're holding on to it. Can you say that? You don't believe it. Can you say it? Do you really believe it? Justified. You know what that means? Just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Therefore, since we are justified, acquitted, declared righteous, and given a right standing with God through faith, let us grasp the fact that we have the peace of reconciliation to hold and enjoy peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, justify. Now what does that mean to us? Let's look at Romans 5, 9, and 10. Because I'm going to tell you what it means to you. Therefore, since we are now justified, acquitted, made righteous, and brought into a right standing and relationship with God by Christ's blood, how much more certain is it that we shall be saved by him from the indignation and wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Now, I'm going to stop right there for a second. I am crucified with Christ. That brought about reconciliation with the Father, didn't it? Yeah, okay. And it says, for <clears throat> while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. It is much more certain now that we are reconciled that we shall be saved and daily delivered from sin's dominion by His, through His, resurrected life. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I... But Christ liveth in me, and the life I live now in the flesh, I live by the, what? By the what? Of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, so, I died, and Paul says, I die daily. In other words, he makes a complete surrender every day. If you want to know what a complete surrender to God looks like, Look at the life of Jesus Christ. That's a complete surrender. Now, I'm not talking about the cross. I'm talking about his whole life. That is a complete surrender to God. So if you want to know what's ahead of you, that's a complete surrender to God. Now, a complete surrender to God is turning water into wine. It's raising dead people. It's doing a lot of things, isn't it? It does. It does a whole lot of things. And God wants to put that in every single one of his people. But you and I refuse to surrender to him. So I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And who lives? Christ lives in me. And what did we just read in, in 5.10? It says that we were reconciled by his death. I am crucified to Christ. 
And we are saved, daily delivered from sin's dominion by his resurrected life, living where? In me. Isn't that fabulous news? It's too overwhelming, isn't it? It is amazing that God will do that for you and I. And here it is in the book of Romans, chapter 5. You can read it and go home and read it again and again and again and again. And just keep reading it and believing it. I am daily delivered from sin's dominion. What does that mean? Well, we're going to take a look. Romans 5, 9 says, Therefore, since we are now justified by Christ's blood, how much more certain is it that we shall be saved by him from the indignation and wrath of God? How many want to be saved? All right, Jesus is the answer. Then it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, it is much more certain now, now that we are reconciled, that we shall be daily delivered from sin's dominion through his resurrected life. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 gives us an idea what Jesus is talking about. It says, There has no temptation taken you, but such is his common demand, but God is faithful, who will not cause you to be what, tempted above what you are able, but will with every temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, if, if every time you're tempted by the devil, God makes a way of escape. The best way to think of it is this way. You're in a room, and the room has a, two doors. And you're in the room, and one door opens, and Satan comes in to tempt you. But God opens up the other door and says, let's go. He makes a way of escape so you can bear it. Is that fair enough? Does that help you to be sin free? That's a naughty word here, I know. But I'm going to show you something. Desire of Ages, page 311 and 312. Now that you have a, a box and you have Desire of Ages in your box, you can go home and you can read this all by yourself. Let's look and see what it says. The ideal of Christian character is Christ-likeness. Do we all agree on that? Yes. yes. Okay. Je Jesus won't come to claim his people until they perfectly reproduce his image. That means 100% surrender. How many of them are going to make it? 144,000. That's the number. And when they're perfectly reproducing the image of Jesus, Jesus is going to come and he's going to claim us all. So, the ideal of Christian character is Christ's likeness. As the Son of Man was perfect in his life, so his followers are to be perfect in their life. Jesus was in all things made like unto his brethren. How many of you take that as a threat that you've got to be perfect? Because I know that's a big issue. Don't you ever, ever tell anybody you're perfect. But you can let God do it. In the book of Job, God likes doing it, doesn't he? In the book of Job, he says, hey, Satan, come here for a second. You see my buddy Job down there? He's a perfect and upright man. Hates evil and loves good. God likes doing that, doesn't he? Absolutely he likes doing that. And so it says that we're, we're, the followers are to be perfect in their life. How many of you are close? Don't get discouraged whatever you do. You're going to find out something that is so marvelous and so wonderful. He became flesh even as we are. He was hungry and thirsty and weary. He was sustained by food and refreshed by sleep. He shared the lot of man, yet he was the blameless son of God. So in his humanity, he made a perfect life. And if in his humanity he can make a perfect life, can you? Can you? Absolutely. I'm going to show you how. He was God in the flesh. His character is to be our character. The Lord says of those who believe in him, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. 
living his perfect life in me as I surrender and let him live it. God's ideal for his children is higher than the highest human thought can reach. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. This command is a promise. And nobody said amen. Nobody said thank you, Jesus. Nobody said hallelujah, because you missed the whole point. What does that say? Say it with me. This command is a promise. What does Jesus promise you? To make you perfect. He starts out, he says, Be ye also perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. This command is a promise. When Jesus said, Let there be light, did light appear? When he said, Let there be earth, did earth appear? When he said, Let there be trees and birds and animals, did they all appear? When Jesus said, this command is a promise. Will it appear in you? Absolutely. When he said to that woman taken in adultery, after he had despised, uh, dispersed all of her, her uh, accusers, and he looked down and she looked up. At first she was afraid to look up. But she had to look up. And she reached up her hand. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, there's none, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn thee. Who is the judge of all? Jesus is the judge of all. And the judge of all said to that woman, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And when she rose to her feet and left the presence of Jesus, she had the promise and the power to do what? Go and sin no more. And every one of us has that same promise and same power. But we do not take hold of it. We deny it. We say nobody can be perfect. We're going to be sinners all the way until Jesus comes. But I'll tell you what, in the book of Revelation it says when Jesus comes, all the sinners are going to be struck dead with the brightness of his coming. How many of you want to wait until Jesus comes to get perfect? Especially since he promises to do it. I knew you weren't going to say it. Thank you, Jesus. He promises to make me perfect before his Father. He has already taken my record and made it perfect. That's justification. He now wants to take my life and make it perfect. That's sanctification. And someday he's going to come in the clouds of glory and take me home. And that's glorification. Isn't that fantastic? And that's our Savior, Jesus. This command is a promise. This command is a promise. Jesus is going to make me perfect. This command is a promise. Can I ever boast? No, never can boast. Will I see myself as perfect? No, never see myself as perfect. Every time I look at myself, the accuser is going to be right there and say, you know all those terrible things you did. You know how terrible you are. You know what a sinner you are. He's going to say all those things to me, and my little mind's going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Jesus is going to say it louder and louder in my ear as I surrender to him. This command is a promise. I will present you before my throne. Faultless, says in the book of Jude. Faultless, I'll present you before my throne. If you're faultless, are you perfect? Amen. Yes. Yes. It used to be when I, I did the ironing at home. When I was a boy, that was my job. I ironed all the clothes. I had eight sisters. I was ironing all the clothes. My mom gave me that job. She thought it was something simple I could figure out. They had a big, a big bottle and it said faultless on it. And I saw that bottle and I said, Mom, what is that bottle for? She said, if you put that on... 
like that nice, nice, wrinkled up thing. You put that on there and you iron it. It will be perfect. It will be faultless. And I thought, wow. So I took the job. She had to buy gallons of that stuff. The plan of redemption contemplates our complete recovery from the power of Satan. You better say, thank you, Jesus. Complete recovery. What do you think of that? Complete recovery. I don't mean when Jesus comes. i got to be ready before Jesus comes. I want to live a life that he can use before he comes. The plan of redemption contemplates our complete recovery from the power of Satan. Christ always separates the contrite soul from sin. He always does what? Separates. What does that mean? He removes you from sin. He removes sin from your life. He separates you from sin. How many would like that? Boy, I would. Just, just... Jesus, take my life and separate me from sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And he has made provision that the Holy Spirit shall be imparted to every repentant soul to do what? Are you one of the repentant souls? Jesus is imparting his Holy Spirit to you to keep you from sinning. The tempter's agency is not to be accounted an excuse for how many? Not one wrong act. You cannot say like Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. You just can't do that. God has made provision. Remember I showed you 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has taken you except it is common to man, but God is faithful who will not cause you to be tempted above what you are able but we'll with every temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There's no excuse for any sin. None. Zero. He separated you from sin. Then how do you sin? You sin when you turn your back on Jesus and go get it. That's how you sin. You know, there, there, there's two words in, in, in the Bible. And, and we don't, a lot of people pass over them and don't understand them. But it talks about Jesus forgiving us for our sin and iniquity. Do you know what the difference is between sin and iniquity? How many people know the difference between sin and iniquity? One person. One person in this room knows the difference. Well, I'm going to tell you the difference. Sin is what you are. Or as they say in the black church, sin is what you is. And they're right. It is what you is. You were born in sin. You live in, a, in, in the mankind, which is all sin. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. Iniquity. Different from sin. Because you can be tempted and fall into temptation and sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with Jesus Christ, the righteous. Okay? So, so you got, you're covered on the sin. But Jesus forgives your iniquity too. And iniquity is when you know it is wrong and you decide you're going to do it anyway. That is iniquity. So when you're reading through the Bible and you see sin and iniquity, and this is all through the book of Psalms, you see sin and iniquity. God forgives your sin and iniquity. Or he says your sins and iniquity have separated you from me. When you see that, you remember, sin is, is, is what you have already, but iniquity is when you make a decision to do wrong. David asked for God to forgive his iniquity. Did he know it was wrong to take Bathsheba? Did he know it was wrong to commit adultery? Did he know it was wrong to have her husband killed to cover up what he had done? That's iniquity. And David said, Lord, please forgive my iniquity. 
my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Keep that straight. I thought he sinned against Uriah. I thought he sinned against Bathsheba. I thought he sinned against the whole nation by what he did as king. But he gets it straight and he says, God, this was against you. I planned to do it. In the book of James it says, He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. The tempter's agency is not to be accounted. An excuse for one wrong act. Satan is jubilant when he hears the professed followers of Christ making excuses for their deformity of character. It is these excuses that lead to sin. You want to avoid sin? Stop making excuses. Don't say the devil made me do it. Don't say I did it because I grew up in the wrong neighborhood. Don't say I did it because I got mad or any other kind of thing. Just face up to it and say a sin. Thank God I have a Savior. 1 John 1.9 says what? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from a couple of sins. What? All unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus. There is no excuse for sinning. A holy temper, a Christ-like life is accessible to every repentant, believing child of God. Christ reaches us where we are. He took our nature and became uh, and overcame that we, through taking his nature, might overcome. I'm crucified with Christ, I'm dead. Now, if I get that straight, I'm dead. Okay? If I don't accept Jesus, what am I? Dead. Even though I'm alive now, but if I don't accept Jesus, I'm dead. That's what wages of sin is death. But if I accept Jesus, nevertheless I live, yet not I. Christ liveth in me, that we through taking his nature might overcome. Surrender. Let him take control of you. Let him have your heart. Made in the likeness of sinful flesh, he lived a sinless life. Not by his divinity, now by his divinity he lays hold upon the throne of heaven, while by his humanity he reaches us. There's the great ladder let down from God out of heaven. Jesus. He bids us by faith in him to attain to the glory of the character of God. Therefore, by the way, anytime you're reading any of Paul's writings and you come to the word therefore, that is the time to put up all your ears and everything and pay attention because he is making the most important statement of that entire part of the Bible. And he does it over and over again. Therefore, Therefore, we are to be perfect, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. That's a pretty big order, isn't it? For you and I to be perfect, but God has promised that he's going to do what? Make you perfect. Going to do it. There it is. He promises that he's going to do it. James says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. A lot of us come to church week after week after week. We think something special is going to happen just because we're coming to church. But if all you do is hear the word and turn around and go home and live the life the way you were before you came through the doors, you aren't doing anything. It's not the hearers of the word that are going to be saved. It's the doers of the word that are going to be saved. If it isn't changing your life, then it's not worth anything. It has got to change your life. The Bible is a life-changing experience. You can be dead to sin, or you can be dead in sin. Which one do you want? You choose. How many want to be dead to sin? How many want to be dead in sin? How many are too old or tired to raise your arm? It says... Romans 6, 11, but likewise reckon yourselves to be what? Dead 
indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, uh, unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are to be perfect, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. You choose, Revelation 14, 13, Psalms 116, 5. Now, when I read these two, you're going to say, wait a minute, Pastor, they don't apply there, but they do apply there. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. I am crucified with Christ. Am I dying? Have I died to self? You are blessed when you die to self. You don't look at it that way, do you? Do you know there's a Bible text in the Bible that, that we, we apply to heaven, but it really applies to right now. It says, The eye has not seen nor the ear heard, neither has it entered into the hearts of men the things that God has prepared for those that love Him. That's talking about your transformation of character. That's what's so fantastic, what God can do in and for you when, he, when you surrender to Him. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You want to die to sin or you want to die in sin? Precious in the sight of the Lord. That's a dual text. It applies to when we physically die. It applies to when we die spiritually. And we give ourselves 100% to Jesus. Therefore, there's another therefore. Are we to be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect? This command is a promise. Thank you, Jesus. This command is a promise. I want to read you a story in closing as a way of an illustration. They put that up there every week just so I can do that. This is a true story. A farmer discovered a young eaglet in the woods. Failing to discover a nesting site, he took it home and placed it in the coop with his chickens. And there it lived and grew. Feeding as did the chickens on the grain fed by the farmer's wife and the grubs and bugs on the ground. Five years passed, and one day a forest ranger stopped at the foothill farm for a cool drink of water. As he talked with the farmer on the shaded porch, he noticed the eagle among the chickens scratching and pecking with its huge beak at the sow bugs in the garden. Alarmed, he directed the farmer's attention to this unusual sight.